Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to those who are here, those who are joining online as well. This morning as we begin, I would like for us to do a little bit of imagining. If it helps to close your eyes, that's fine, but just... Think with me for a moment. Imagine what it would have been like to be in the world of Jesus, to be in that place, to be in that time, to be in that culture and context. What do you think it was like? What do you think you would see if you were somehow placed down into the world of Jesus? What would you hear? What would be going on around you? What would you smell What was it like to be in the time and place of Jesus? Well, this morning, if you're saying, well, I don't really know, then that's fair, that's understandable, because all that we have about the time is some things that we've heard or learned or read or maybe imagined before. Maybe we've seen something on television or in a movie that tries to cast that time and place for us. But what we have is what's in our minds. And perhaps like me, you think of that time and place in your mind and you you picture something very different than than our normal day-to-day world. It can feel very easily like the world, the time and place of Jesus was very different than ours. And in many ways, it certainly was. It can be difficult to grasp what that was like. Even those of us who have been to the Holy Land, to Palestine, get a taste, a glimpse perhaps of the geography, but not exactly the culture and context as Jesus experienced it. Few of us have lived in Palestine for an extended time, and if we did, it wasn't 2,000 years ago. And so we find ourselves displaced a bit from the time and place of Jesus. And so it's incredibly important extremely helpful for us to be aware of the differences and the cultural context of the life and times and place of Jesus every time we open up the Bible that tells us about what he did and how he lived and taught. Every time we open up a book, a reading in the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, these four gospel accounts that open up for us the life of Jesus, we have to realize that those things happen within a particular time and place. In fact, the reason that there are four Gospels, four different stories and accounts of the life of Jesus, is that those four authors each had their own perspective and background and intended audience and in some ways intended purpose in writing down those accounts. Context matters. And so I appreciate how Pastor Chris, uh, as he puts together the readings, as you just heard uh, Rich read this morning, each time the scripture is read to us, It's framed with a little bit of cultural and historical context so we can understand a bit about what it is we're about to hear. Context matters deeply as we approach God's word, the Bible. And so as we read how Jesus lived and acted and walked, the things he ate, the way he talked, how he traveled, how he slept, even the way he made friends and enemies, it's helpful for us to understand as much as we can, the context in which he did anything. Now, we don't have to become experts in first century Palestinian life 
to approach God's word. I don't want to get you the, give you the sense that there are obstacles to us approaching it, but it's helpful when we understand the context in which Jesus lived and worked and taught. The better we understand the context of these passages, the, the more accurately they'll come to life and come to light for us. Now, if we factor in these cultural and contextual considerations as we come to the Bible, as we try to look at these stories through the lens of context, we will rightly understand that Jesus lived and taught in a time that was quite different from ours. And it's possible that we would then jump to the conclusion that, well, it was such a different time and place that maybe his world, his time, isn't really relevant to ours. Maybe his time and place was so different that there's, that there's little connection between us and him. And if we conclude that, that would really be a tragic mistake because an understanding of context isn't meant for us to, to dismiss the time and place of Jesus, but to, to actually connect some dots, to make connections between his time and ours. Context is intended to foster connections, not to sever them. And so even though Jesus lived in a very different cultural and political, religious and historical context than the one we navigate today, we see in the gospel accounts that in many ways, actually, the life of Jesus was remarkably similar to the life we navigate and live. Because precisely that Jesus lived and walked in this stew of culture and politics and religion, we can look at that and say, yep, that, that sounds familiar. That looks familiar. That's relevant for us. And we see in the Gospels that just like us, Jesus got hungry. Jesus got sleepy, tired, discouraged, angry. Jesus felt pain. And he and his friends, as they walked and journeyed, encountered people in pain. They encountered death. Everyone we read about in the Gospels, including Jesus, died. And while they lived, they came face to face with those who were mourning loved ones whom they'd lost in death. And we see that just as we are called to do, Jesus and his friends spent time trying to live life as God intended, to develop habits that would help them live out the heart of God's word. This morning, we begin a new series focusing on the kinds of encounters that Jesus had in his lifetime, in his context, in his culture. And we'll discover many things that might seem strange or different or puzzling or unusual to us. We'll also see some common threads that remind us that one reason that God came among us in human flesh was to live out a bodily example of what it means to live life the way God intends it, the, God, the way God calls us to live as those called by his name. The way to live a life that honors God, that blesses our neighbors, and that actually leads to our deepest joy and satisfaction. And so we'll discover together how we can learn from our master and teacher, Jesus, what it means to live as disciples today as we learn from his context. Now, Jesus, as you can imagine, I'm sure, lived in a world where religious identity religious activity mattered a lot. 
It's quite likely, as we look at the difference between Jesus' context and ours, that, that in Jesus' time, there were more people to whom religion seemed to deeply matter. But I think we'd recognize many similarities as well if we were placed suddenly in the context of Jesus. Because we'd see people with different ideas about which religion is right. We'd see people within the same religion with different ideas about what it means to to follow out faithfully the beliefs of that religion. We'd see a range of beliefs within those religions. We'd encounter different, different views on the proper level of interaction and integration between religion and government. We'd find an array of views on how Christian leaders should be trained and set apart. Different views on how kids should be raised so that they take their own place in the faith. If we were to somehow land in the world of Jesus for a weekend religion tour, there would be a lot that would puzzle us. But there would much, be much that would seem familiar, at least in its essence, if not in the details in particulars. Now, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's important for us, essential for us to remember that Jesus actually didn't come to earth to start a new religion. I love how author Don Everts expresses this in his book, Jesus with Dirty Feet. Everts writes, for starters, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus never asked anyone to become a Christian. He simply called people to follow him. And the first two were brothers, Simon and Andrew, regular guys, simple fishermen. They became the first two Christians ever. But these brothers didn't think that they were becoming Christians or that they were taking on a new religion. A 30-year-old carpenter-turned-rabbi simply said, follow me, and they followed and came to believe. End of quote from Don Everts. So Simon, who was later called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and many others who chose to follow Jesus, came to believe that he was in fact the Son of God, in fact the promised Messiah whom they had long awaited, who had long been hoped for and taught about within a religion that had long been around, the religion of Judaism. The word Christianity actually doesn't appear in the Bible. I don't know if it's a shock, but I'll say it again. Christianity does not appear in the Bible. The word Christian appears because we see that when the disciples, the followers of Jesus who were left behind after Jesus had risen from the dead, before he ascended to heaven, he gave them an important mission and said, go and preach and teach and baptize and serve and love. When those disciples began to have such a profound impact on Jerusalem, on the Roman Empire, on these centers of political and cultural and religious life, when those worlds were, in a sense, turned upside down, people needed a name, a label for what was going on. And so they recognized that these instigators of this spiritual and whole life renewal, this revolution that was happening, were so closely, so intimately connected to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ that these followers, this fledgling church became known as Christians or adherents of Christ, little Christs. 
And instead of a word like Christianity arising, the first term seems to be, if we look at Acts chapter nine, the way. This movement was called the way. It's not a religion, it's a way of life that was modeled and taught by Jesus himself. We need to remember, too, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. He's Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. Jesus is the climactic person and moment of the Jewish faith, the fulfillment of the covenants and promises God had made with Abram, with Adam, with Noah, with Jacob, with Isaac. Jesus was the hope that God spoke of through the prophets for hundreds of years. The forerunner of this new covenant we heard read about from the words of Jeremiah when God said, I'm gonna do something new among you. Something new, a new covenant, a new promise. And so Jesus must be viewed through the lens of the Jewish faith in order for us to make sense of who he was and what he was about. He's inextricably linked to Judaism, which is why as followers of Jesus today, we say that we read and believe the word of God as both the New and the Old Testaments, the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. We follow all of it as the word of God. As Christians, we follow a Jewish savior and Lord. Jesus and the early Christian church were actually so rooted in the Jewish faith that one of the first big debates uh, among Christians, among followers of Christ, was whether or not people who weren't Jews even could, could be Jesus' followers. Did it make sense that somebody who didn't find themselves steeped in the Jewish faith become a follower of the Jewish Messiah? Now, thanks for... Uh, thankfully for most of us here, that was decided to be in favor of the non-Jews, the Gentiles, because it was recognized that Jesus, in his work, in his resurrection, actually tore down those dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles, those of Jewish faith and those outside of it. But even then, there was a new debate that sprung up that said, well, okay, if somebody can come from outside the Jewish faith, to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe they should become a Jew first and then become a Christian. And again, it was decided after much debate that that was also not the case. But we get a glimpse from these debates just how rooted in the Jewish faith the Christian church is. As Jesus walked the roads of Palestine, he navigated a deeply religious culture, and we need to keep that in our frame of mind. This particular world that Jesus walked was steeped in Judaism. Judaism, the only major monotheistic faith in the time of Jesus. Judaism, this faith that traced itself back to the time when God called to himself a nation and said, I am going to deliver you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to place my own name on you as my people. Judaism traced back to the time of Abraham, the time of Moses, to the events of the exodus and rescue of God's people out of the land of Egypt. And so it was actually much later, even by the time of Jesus, 
that Judaism had come to morph and have evolved, especially over the four centuries since the last words of the Hebrew Testament, our Old Testament, were penned. One element of the Jewish religious landscape in that culture that probably wouldn't surprise us is that within that faith, different sects or, or groups or denominations, if you will, had, had sprung up. So we'd recognize those, those differences and those debates and divisions. These sects had different beliefs, different emphases, different ways of doing things. Last summer in, in, the July of, in July of 2021, Pastor Ali and Pastor Chris did a mini-series kind of opening up for us some truth and insight into these, these Jewish sects that had arisen, again, between the time of the end of the Old Testament and the time that Jesus walked in Palestine. So I commend those to you if you want to go back and, and do a deeper dive into the religious context of Jesus. We can help you find those on our website if you need help finding those sermons. In the Gospels, we see Jesus navigate a world in which these various subgroups, these various sects, were, were vying for, for power, for recognition. They were often battling it out with each other for who's right and who's in charge. And as Jesus encountered these groups, we see that often these groups would want Jesus to recognize them as the ones who had it right. But more often we see that members of these groups, especially the, the most, the staunchest adherents were actually trying to prove that Jesus was wrong, that Jesus in fact was a fraud. Sadly, we see that many of these groups' most ardent followers were so focused on the agenda and particulars of their sect that they missed, completely missed, the bigger picture Messiah right in front of their faces. I think that's a, a good word for us today as we think about, well, how might this impact our own context? Are there ways we're focused on details that, that keep us from seeing Jesus in front of us? Jesus had an amazing knack for peeling away the veneer of relig religiosity and getting to the heart of what it actually means to be someone who honors God with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Luke chapter 18, we find a, a fascinating series of encounters that Luke just lists one after the other between Jesus and the religious folks around him. And these, out, these encounters spotlight for us this reality that Jesus doesn't call us to a, a religion, but to a way of life. So let me read for us Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a member of one of those religious sects, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified 
before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, but Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this replied, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with humankind is possible with God. So Luke gives us these three episodes just back to back, and I want us to walk through each of them together this morning. First, we see episode one, where Jesus encounters the self-righteous. The self-righteous, those who think that, that religion is about getting it right, doing it right, and then being so justified by knowing the right things and doing the right things that you're actually better than the people around you. One day, Jesus found himself among those who, found themselves, who felt, thought they were superior to others and who were smugly confident in their own acceptability before God. And it's clear from the story in Luke that these are Pharisees because Jesus uses Pharisees in the story that he tells. Pharisees were those who believed that it was strict obedience to the word of God and strict adherence to their interpretation of what that looked like or should look like in real life that was the key to entering the kingdom of God, to being right before God. And in the parable of Jesus, he turns this understanding on its head. In the story, who is accepted and justified before God? It wasn't the religious do-gooder it wasn't the expected hero of the story, but it was, it was the tax collector. You see that the tax collector was cast as the villain even back then. So there's some cultural connection for you. The tax collector was the villain, and Jesus said, no, he's, he's the one that went home right with God. And Jesus, in that story, in that parable, answers what was an unasked question the question, well, what is true religion? And Jesus answers through this story, the true religion is humble repentance before God. Humble repentance. 
Episode two from Luke 18 shows us Jesus among a group of those who were indignant. This particular group was his disciples, the disciples who seemed to think that true religion was, was serious stuff, stuff for grown-ups. Luke says that people were bringing babies to Jesus so he might place his hands on them and bless them. The disciples were having none of that. Luke just says that, that the disciples rebuked the crowds. We can imagine their words. Come on, people, push back, push back. Jesus has important things to do. You can see them almost mocking the people. You know, babies? Like, what are you thinking? Babies don't even understand what's going on or who Jesus is. Why waste the teacher's time? But again, Jesus turns the scene on its head and welcomes the children. Not only welcomes them and blesses them, but then points to them as another kind of living parable and says, you see these kids? These are the ones who, who get it. It's the ones who become like them, who choose to be like them, that have found the secret of true religion before God. And again, to the unasked question, what is true religion? Jesus, in this encounter, responds, it's childlike faith, a childlike embrace of the kingdom of God. In Luke, in this uh, passage from Luke, we find episode three in which Jesus encounters a potential disciple, a potential disciple who it turns out is actually simply too reluctant to follow in the way of Jesus. Luke's third vignette reveals an encounter between Jesus and a certain ruler who is revealed through the story to be a person of considerable wealth. Like the Pharisees of the first example, we get some sense that this, that this man has done a, a, a calculation to say, well, if I do enough right things, I should be accepted into God's kingdom. And Jesus tells them, you are right to do those things, but, but there's, there's one more thing. There's one thing you're lacking. And then Jesus invites the man to leave everything behind and follow him. Just as Jesus had told those fishermen brothers on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and they had dropped their nets and followed Jesus wherever he went. Jesus puts his finger lovingly on the one thing that was keeping this rich ruler from, from truly seeking and following God with his whole heart. And it was his fondness for wealth and the satisfaction and comfort and security that it brought him. In this episode, Jesus meets someone who does ask the question, what is true religion? It comes out of this man in the, in, the, in the words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers this time, you need truly empty hands. You need truly willing feet that will follow me wherever I go. Jesus tells the rich ruler and those listening to this encounter that anything and everything that gets between us and true devotion to God is going to be a stumbling block. Anything we hold closely, grasp tightly, refuse to let go is going to become between us and God's plan and call for us. It will end up being our downfall. Jesus says a camel is just too big to fit through the eye of a needle. 
And a rich person clinging to riches just can't get in to the kingdom. A person with resistant self-focus, with secret or not-so-secret entanglements, just isn't free enough, isn't ready enough to walk into the way that Jesus invites us. Now, Jesus is quick to point out it's actually, it's actually impossible for anyone to be sufficiently free of, of encumberments and entanglements to fully embrace the kingdom of God. But, but Jesus then says, but with God, everything is possible. God is able to strip away from us those things that are keeping us from God. Jesus lived and taught in a world that was saturated with religion. And he showed what it meant to live according to the heart of God's word revealed to the people God created. Jesus didn't start a new religion, but he pointed to life as God meant for it to be lived. He lived that life in front of anyone who was willing to stop and notice and watch and learn. And as we seek to learn from Jesus as our, as our master, as our teacher, may we be people who, who follow him with devotion and with humility. May we follow him with childlike faith, a willingness to, to follow Jesus with our hearts, even as we're trying to figure things out in our minds. And may we follow Jesus with our hands and our lives emptied of anything and everything that would, would slow us down, that would trip us up, would keep us from the pursuit of the one who calls us to follow him. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, fulfillment of all the promises of the Father, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, would you lead us? Would you teach us? Show us any way that we've gotten bogged down in religion when you call us to a life that is unencumbered and wholehearted. God, keep us from Anything in us that is not a devotion to you, but a commitment to a religious system. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love and your mercy, all revealed to us so perfectly in the person and the life of your son, Jesus. God, would you help us by the work of your Holy Spirit to keep our eyes on him. We pray this in his name. Amen.